and welcome to the latest ORX podcast. My name's Steve Bishop and I'm the Research and Information Director at ORX and today I'm joined by two of the team, Melanie and Amelia. Well, once again, uh, we find ourselves in a time of, of turbulence and I think therefore it feels quite appropriate that today we're here to talk primarily about operational resilience. We'll also have an accompanying ORX news segment where the team will be taking us through their regular review of the top five events that have been reported this month. And then they're also focusing in on sanctions as a a hot topic, clearly with the current geopolitical situation, financial services organizations are having to do a lot of work to implement a raft of sanctions in different countries. And that's obviously quite challenging for them. And I think they're gonna focus in on a couple of events where organizations have lost money through control failures. So to get started with the main topic, we've seen the concept of operational resilience rise in prominence over the last few years. I think initially as a a regulator-driven priority, but also becoming a real business priority in today's world. I think we saw it spurred on by the COVID pandemic, the geopolitical tensions, the significant increase we've witnessed in cyber risk, and also the, the sort of real complexity that financial services have identified in their supply chains. As we've discussed before, operational resilience really represents a shift in risk management perspective. It means that organisations need to focus not just on prevention, but also the acceptance that events are going to happen in in the sort of complex interconnected environment in which they operate. They need to be adequately prepared for this eventuality, and that's really where operational resilience comes in. The majority of banking and insurance members that we speak to have been practically considering enhancing their operational resilience capability for in excess of two years now in a lot of cases, and they really are making significant strides. I think particularly with changing their organisational culture to come around to the operational resilience perspective, but also enhancing the understanding of their businesses and, and learning new things about the way they operate to enhance their control environment. During that time, ORX has supported the industry through a dedicated working group and also with research studies. And I'm going to hand over to Melanie now, who's going to talk a little bit about the latest study that we've just published. Melanie. Thanks, Steve. So today we're going to share some of the key findings from the most recent research study, specifically looking at some of the challenges and more importantly, the practical steps the community are working through to implement and embed operational resilience. One of the main challenges that we keep coming back to within the community is how best to connect operational risk and operational resilience, really exploring what that relationship should look like in practical terms. So what should your operating model look like and how do you develop it and deliver synergies and efficiencies across both disciplines? We'll also briefly share some progress the community are making in mapping their end-to-end services and some of the challenges, as Steve's already alluded to, in developing third-party supply chain operational resilience. So I'm going to pass over to Amelia to just provide some further detail on this. Thank you, Melanie. So I will briefly talk you through some of the headline findings. So the first thing I'll mention is that we're starting to see some real progress being made in the industry in terms of organizations incorporating that operational resilience lens or perspective into their risk management activity. But we do still expect it will be another three to five years before the majority of embedded operational resilience within business as usual activity. 
And then the other thing I'll briefly cover are some of the sort of things we've heard in the study that organizations should consider when they go on that journey of designing and implementing operational resilience plans. So firstly, it's ensuring that operational resilience isn't and doesn't become a siloed or standalone activity. And we're encouraged to see that this is a real priority and and some are even already achieving this. Then secondly, it's making sure that early and comprehensive stakeholder management is a priority. So operational resilience isn't just about introducing and implementing new processes and activities. Crucial to actually achieving that resilience is driving that cultural change and awareness across the organization. And thirdly and finally, it's ensuring that operational resilience utilizes, complements and even strengthens existing risk management practice. Thanks, Amelia. So we've heard on many occasions now the point you make about that early and regular stakeholder engagement being critical. A few of the community did actually try to develop operational resilience as a siloed activity and very quickly found that that just was not possible. So that is really one of the the critical areas we believe to successful delivery of operational resilience is that broad and deep regular stakeholder engagement across the business. And then, of course, ensuring that the output from operational resilience activities actually feed back into the operational risk management practices, making sure that the two disciplines proactively talk to each other to deliver operational resilience as an outcome of good risk management. So, Amelia, in the latest study, what do the community feel operational resilience may actually look like once it is embedded? So, some of the business's usual predictions for the future, and of course, this will be different for everyone, but broadly speaking, what we would expect to see is that for that cultural shift to have taken place, we'd then expect roles and responsibilities to be understood and clearly defined, and that includes ownership and accountability for end-to-end services or processes. The operational resilience approach will align with other enterprise frameworks and activities, and it will also align with expectations and or requirements outlined by relevant regulators or supervisors. And finally, we'd expect to see continued and ongoing investment into operational resilience and remediation. Great. So that cultural shift that you talk about really is an interesting point. Essentially, a mindset shift requiring organisations to think service rather than the more traditional risk management view of perhaps individual business units or individual risks, something the community is still striving to achieve and definitely not something that's an overnight deliverable. Sure. So let's move on to the first uh, topic. So so the first topic we'll explore is, is what you mentioned before, Melanie, about how operational resilience and operational risk management interact. And this is a conversation we've had on a number of occasions now with the operational resilience community. And the sort of primary challenge is understanding the dynamic and relationship between the two and then reflecting that in the operating model. And then in addition to that, it's ensuring that the two align that synergies between the two are explored and that operational resilience isn't a siloed functional program of activities. And Melanie, do you want to talk us through some of the common themes that we heard about in the survey? Yeah, sure. I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record here because we've already mentioned the importance of stakeholder management, but it really, really has been called out as fundamental to delivering operational resilience. So ensuring the second line functions are involved and there is cross-collaboration within the business. That deep and broad set of organisational stakeholders is required to ensure everyone in the business 
understands the role they play and how their work supports resilience activities. The other point, really, uh, one of the themes was integration. So using a consistent data set and trying to drive data consistency across the organization, probably something most organizations have been trying to do for many years, but resilience has been used as a catalyst to actually drive that faster. And the other thing, as you've already mentioned, is looking at operational risk component parts and actually making sure that you utilize those where you can rather than designing everything from scratch purely from a resilience point of view. And the final theme which came out loud and clear was the use of a consistent language. Again, something most organizations have struggled with, in particular between first line and second line over the years. But being able to have a single language that everybody understands helps to avoid those silos and duplication. And the resilience terminology should really align as much as possible to the organizational language so as not to confuse members of the teams and also to ensure that you get absolute alignment of activities across the business. We do get the impression that this is a challenge and it's, as I say, not just about resilience, but resilience is now being used as the pivot to make this happen more quickly. So I'll hand over to you now, Steve, if that's okay, to introduce the next topic. Yeah, it's fine. Thanks. I was just going to add in on that overall topic, particularly that sort of shift in the way people think about risk management from the traditional vertical view to more of a the horizontal view. So thinking about their critical services that cut across different businesses and, and functions, etc. We are beginning to see that the sort of emergence of a trend full stop for operational risk to start thinking more more in that way. We've had a series of meetings with our Leaders Connect community this week. So that's for heads of operational non-financial risk. And there was a discussion about the sort of challenges and the benefits of moving to the the horizontal view. So in, in that particular instance, it was looking across their value chains, but that's not dissimilar to thinking about critical services. And the benefits of moving risk management to a way that aligns with the way that the business look at and think about their operations means quite often as well that the sort of thought around the risks and controls and the status of those controls, it sort of links through to their day-to-day life and stops it operating as a sort of parallel exercise and process. So I think clearly move to operational resilience is requiring that realignment, but I think people are seeing the strategic benefits of it as well. And I think we'll see that trend emerging more and more over the coming months and years. So sorry, uh, moving to our next topic. So looking at mapping, that was the next area that the study went into. This is really about driving an understanding of the processes, the systems, the technologies, etc., that critical services is dependent on. I think the exercise really looks to try and understand potential vulnerabilities, and it helps to understand the sort of interdependencies across those services. So pretty important in terms of getting into the detail of understanding and managing those critical services and their resilience. I think what we have heard on a regular basis, a a bit like everything else today, is that this isn't an an easy exercise. People are making progress, but they've also highlighted some challenges and some learnings as part of the report that that Amelia, I think, is going to run us through. I will. Thank you. So on the specific challenges, and, and the first one is one that we've heard on a number of occasions now, that's around granularity of mappings. So as you mentioned, Steve, mapping should 
ideally help identify vulnerabilities and interdependencies. But exactly how granular do you go with that? So do you take it all the way down to keystroke level of detail or do you keep it more high level? And this is an ongoing challenge, which we expect will be solved more organically as that activity starts to mature a little bit more. The second challenge then is around maintainability. So mapping for the majority of firms at the moment is a spreadsheet-based activity and therefore fairly static as an exercise. Um, And we expect this to change as as firms invest in in additional tooling and, and automation, which we know they're planning to do. And then the final challenge I'll cover is around ownership and oversight. And we were pleasantly surprised to hear that this is actually an area that's maturing quite rapidly. And most firms are proactively putting in place clear ownership and governance structures for their important business services. So that's a quick overview of mapping there. Thanks, Amelia. I was just going to add one of the things that a lot of the community have shared with us over the last 12 months that they've been doing that mapping. They've actually identified vulnerabilities that previously they didn't have visibility of. So most are seeing this as a really opportune moment to get into some of the detail to support risk management, control issues, et cetera, which perhaps there wasn't the level of visibility. So a lot of seeing this as a real positive doing this exercise. Absolutely. So I will just briefly introduce the final topic that we're going to cover, which is third-party resilience. Steve mentioned this earlier too, I believe, third-party operational resilience is a major challenge. And we're seeing a growing reliance in the industry on third parties who are often involved in some way directly or maybe indirectly in delivering important business services. And then we're also seeing third parties themselves outsourcing more and more, which is leading to sort of increased supply chain complexity. Fundamentally, the the third party risk and the increased supply chain What we're hearing is the lack of direct oversight of what is actually happening at third parties. So dependent on their role in the service, third parties could actually be a key vulnerability and a limitation to actually achieving resilience. And we've seen a number of the community actually facing this challenge head on. How do you get visibility across your whole supply chain and how far do you go So do you include, for instance, your utility companies in that view? We also see an increase in regulator interest in this space, with some setting out some really clear direction and expectations for what they want to see for overseeing third parties. And I'm not sure anybody's really overcome this. I mean, it's not specific to operational resilience. We hear the same in our cyber community working groups as well. But it it is an area which is going to just become ever more heightened as our communities look to outsource their services. So, Amelia, I'm not sure if I've missed anything there. I think that was a good overview. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you very much, both. I think it's been fascinating to be involved in this topic over the last couple of years and watching the the journeys that organisations are going on. And I think particularly a real positive, I think, for me is the the sort of alignment that we're starting to see more and more between the resilience activity and operational risk and that drive to really work together and desire not to create a silo. And that, that's just essential, I think, for it to be successful. And I also think the sort of the nuggets of findings that people are identifying as they look across their services and get that different perspective on their their control environment and their suppliers, etc., is only going to 
make these organisations more resilient. And that's clearly a positive for all the stakeholders involved. So thank you very much, Melanie and Amelia. I hope that provides the listeners with a good overview of the, the key considerations and the findings. For members, there's more detail as ever in the report that we produced on this. That includes some additional work where we looked at impact tolerances and their use. And there's also more resilience resources on the members site at www.orx.org. And you can always get in touch if you need help finding them. We will, of course, continue to support our resilience community in the coming months and years. And we'll also continue to monitor the sort of regulatory activity and developments in this space. A number of jurisdictions have still not issued regulation, albeit our banks and insurers in those areas are anticipating that. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Okay, now I'd like to hand over to uh, our RX news team. Hello and welcome. My name is Lily Richardson. I'm the RX news manager. In case you haven't heard of RX news, we're a subscription service from RX, which covers publicly reported operational risk loss events in the financial sector from across the globe. This month, we'll take a brief look at the five largest losses of February 2022 reported in US dollars. And in light of the recent war in Ukraine and the sanctions imposed on Russia, we thought we'd give you an overview of a couple of news stories we have in our system about fines by UK and US regulators over breaches of financial sanctions imposed against Russia after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And now I'd like to introduce Fern, the Orex News Assistant Manager for Editorial. Thanks, Lily. Hi, everyone. In this month's podcast, we are going to talk about international sanctions. But first, we'll go through this month's top five. For this episode, I'm joined by Tom, our senior news researcher. Hi, Fern. Thank you. So first thing first, we'll go through our top five biggest losses news flash. In fifth, Credit Suisse agreed to an 81 million settlement over allegations of its involvement in a stock lending cartel. In fourth, cryptocurrency platform BlockFi was fined $100 million by the US CFTC for offering securities while unregistered. In third, DeFi protocol Wormhole lost $323 million in a hack which exploited a vulnerability in their cryptocurrency conversion function. The second largest loss was to Rabobank, who provisioned $380.5 million to compensate customers over variable interest rates. And the largest loss was to Allianz, who also provisioned over $4 billion in anticipation of settlements with investors and regulators. And now we're moving on to this month's key theme, international sanctions. We'll present two stories on the matter. Okay, so our first example involves the United Kingdom Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, OFSI for short. It fined Standard Chartered over $25 million for breaching EU financial sanctions against Russia after it annexed Crimea in 2014. In July 2014, the EU imposed restrictive measures against Russia for threatening the territorial integrity of Ukraine. The measures were intended to prevent certain Russian banks, companies and their subsidiaries from accessing primary or secondary capital markets and access to loans with a maturity of over 30 days. Between April 2015 and January 2018, Standard Chartered made a series of 102 loans to Turkey-based bank Denizbank, which was almost wholly owned by Russia's Spurbank until 2019. Ofsi said that although some of the loans were permitted under EU regulation exemption, 
a total of 70 loans in excess of £266 million did not qualify for exemption. The breaches after the 1st of April 2017 fell under the remit of the UK Treasury. So, as a branch of the UK Treasury, Offsea issued penalties for the 21 loans made between April 2017 and January 2018, with an estimated transaction value of £97.5 million. Was Standard Chartered aware of the sanctions? Offsea said that Standard Chartered was aware of the sanctions regime and the need to take compliance steps. After Deniz Bank became a sanctioned entity, Standard Chartered initially stopped all trade finance business with them. But Standard Chartered then sought to introduce dispensations, enabling such loans to be made where applicable. Offsea said that these dispensations were not appropriately put in place and the loans made during April 2017 and January 2018 were in breach of EU regulation. The failings persisted over an extended period of time, leading to Standard Chartered repeatedly making new loans to Denise Bank. How did Offsea find out about the breaches? Standard Chartered disclosed the suspected breaches to Offsea. After an internal investigation of the breaches, they provided a detailed report of the investigation to Offsea, as well as interim updates, and also cooperated with Offsea's investigation. As a result of Standard Chartered's cooperation, Offsea reduced each penalty by 30%, and Standard Chartered paid the £20.5 million, equivalent to about $25.4 million, up until March 2020. This was reportedly the largest fine for violating Russian sanctions both in the EU and the United States. Thanks, Tom. Our second example is another interesting case. The US Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC for short, fined the international payment transfer provider Payoneer 1.4 million for sanctions violations. Essentially, between 2013 and 2018, Payoneer processed over 2,000 transactions for parties based in sanctioned areas, including Crimea, Iran, Sudan and Syria. Payoneer didn't self-disclose these transactions either. So, in July 2021, OFAC settled with Payoneer over deficiencies in their sanctions compliance program. And during the investigations, they identified three aggravating factors which led to the fine. First of all, OFAC said that Payoneer should have known the location of their users, based on indicators such as billing, shipping or IP addresses. They also said that the violations caused harm to six different sanction programs and that Payoneer failed to exercise caution or care for their sanctions compliance obligations when they allowed people on the list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons to open accounts and make transactions. Did Payoneer have policies and procedures which specified that transactions involving parties in OFAC-sanctioned locations were prohibited? Yes, they did. When testing and auditing these controls, they failed to identify the relevant compliance deficiencies, such as the use of weak algorithms which didn't flag close matches to the SDN list and failure to screen for BICs even when they appeared on the SDN list. And during busy periods, Payoneer also allowed flagged and pending payments to go through automatically without review. And they lacked focus on sanctioned locations, especially in Crimea, because they were not monitoring them properly. So what happened after Payoneer became aware of the compliance issues? Payoneer's senior management self-disclosed the violations and cooperated fully with the investigation. 
They also implemented remedial measures to minimize future risks, replaced their CCO, retrained all compliance employees and hired new compliance staff to focus specifically on testing. For further details about the stories, including the full taxonomy used to categorize both events, please visit the ORX website. Thank you very much, Fern and Tom. In light of the war in Ukraine, ORX News has launched a weekly summary of relevant stories as an extra service for news subscribers. This summary will aim to cover significant new developments as it relates to the financial services industry, rather than collate every single piece of media coverage of the conflict in Ukraine. I hope you enjoyed listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to know more about the top five losses, then please visit the ORX website where you can find the top five losses for each month, as well as a range of operational risk reports and resources. You can also read the full digest for each of the stories discussed in this episode on the ORX website. Just search orx.org. Join us next time to hear next month's top five losses. Thank you. Thank you very much. That just leaves me to say really a big thank you to everybody that's contributed today, to the ORX news team, to Amelia, to Melanie, uh, and to you all for listening to this podcast. We hope you find them enjoyable and informative. As I said before, for more details on our services, please visit ORX.org, and that allows you to get in touch with us if you want to chat. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you.